I find it uh, bittersweet <clears throat> that I can say that I'm, I'm finally with you again, and, and yet that is so empty in the sense that I'm not really with you. Um, many of you have noticed, I'm sure, that uh, I haven't preached for um, actually the entire duration so far of the uh, restrictions that we've been under. And um, just a little way of exp- explanation, um, before this actually happened, um, I had, uh, or just as this was about to happen, uh, there was an opportunity with a reduced preaching schedule that um, I would be able to take a break from preaching. And so I asked the brothers if, if that would be acceptable, and they did. They said that it would be. And so um, I was able to um, be ministered to by the Spirit, and to um, I'm now very grateful that I could be back again with you. And I'm so thankful for the many who have uh, reached out to me and encouraged me, and uh, I do appreciate that. God bless you. Um, one of the things that... Uh, is facing myself as a preacher. I, I don't want to speak on anybody else's behalf, but um, some years ago, I, I I wanted to struggling with my own uh, inabilities or perhaps my lack of of uh, of great wisdom and knowledge. Um, I I switched my approach to preaching into one of of such that um, we would go to a book and we would preach through that book, uh, and um, and I and. A, for me, it was very applicable, or I think it was very helpful, because I felt like um, the Holy Spirit, as he had laid this out with the brothers who had uh, written the scriptures, um, he was so much more um, aware and wise in doing such a thing that I could never compare in my own ability to craft together, in a sense, a, a message. Um, and so I, I wanted to, in a sense, uh, surrender to the Holy Spirit um, recognizing my own weaknesses so that um, I would be able to just go through the word as he had uh, put it together. Well, one of the problems with that, I shouldn't say a problem, one of the fears that I had with that is what if I get to a place where, um, you know, maybe the, the message isn't that applicable. Or, or maybe, you know, this, uh, in my my thinking that maybe it's not going to resonate as much with people. And perhaps, you know, as a congregation, we need to hear this thing. And, and um the more I've, I've submitted myself to going through the Word and trusting the Holy Spirit, the more I've come to recognize that not only is the Spirit keenly aware of the circumstances that we go through as a church family, as the body of Christ, but He is so much more able to time what we need to hear. And it's with this in mind that I, I come to this scripture that we're going to talk about today, and it's in Revelation uh, chapter 21. Um, if you, some of you may remember when uh, we when I last preached, it was up to verse eight, and it was the um, introduction. We saw the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem um, descending, and uh, we we see this. Um, this is the point now where it's over. This is the good news now. These are the last two chapters of the scriptures, and no longer are we going to be talking about uh, death and hell, because they've all been cast into the lake of fire. They're gone forever. And, and now we simply have, not simply I should say, but now we have gloriously the promises of God being realized. But even more so, I want to uh, uh, highlight today, as we go through uh, verses 9 through to the end, something that has become so keenly um, obvious to us, or so... Uh, 
um, almost tangible by its lack, and that is presence. You and I, um, for being in, in, a, in a part of a fellowship, I, I don't know how you feel, but I so keenly feel the lack of the presence of each other. I so much um, thrive on being with. And, and you know, perhaps there was a time where I took that for granted, but boy, I don't take that for granted anymore. I so much want to be with people. I so much want to have, uh, be in the presence of my brothers and sisters. And this is the time that we live in because that's been taken away from us. And, it's, and we've been restricted. And I want to now apply, take that, that mindset in a sense. Take that and now imagine what God must have felt. Or must feel. Not must have, but he still feels this. So go all the way back to the beginning of, uh, of uh, the scriptures. And we see this beautiful picture in the scriptures of God with Adam and Eve. And how intimate that was. It says that he came in the cool of the morning. I, I sat this morning um, I'm, I'm out inside though. And I'm looking outside and I could just appreciate the gorgeousness of, of the day and the morning. And, and the temperature. And, and imagine now God coming in the cool of the morning. And, and talking to Adam and Eve. And, and how beautiful that must have been for them to be in the presence of God, in the physical presence of God. And, and then we know how the story goes, how that um, through sin, uh, through the disobedience, and, and sin enters the world, and because of the holiness of God, that he cannot be in the presence of the sin. It's so they were uh, removed from the garden and no longer could he physically be with them. And so then we see all through scripture that this, this um, heart of God who longed to be with his people, who came in the cool of the morning calling out to Adam and to Eve, he still, all through scripture now, is calling out to his children. And we see that all through the scriptures, that in one way or another, God was not okay with locking the doors on the, the garden and saying, that's it, you know, you blew it, but he's now reaching out all the time, reaching and reaching and saying, come, I need you. I want you. Not that he needs us, but that he wants us and he desires to be with us, his creation. And now in a time when we can all appreciate what it means to be distant, what it means to have this, what we're doing right now, this virtual, it doesn't work, does it? It's not the same as sitting here. It's not the same as, as me seeing your faces. And, and I'm, I, I know that it's not the same when I sit on my couch and I watch the brothers preach. It's not the same. And I think in some way, God is also, uh, this is reflective of how God must long for the real, the real thing, the presence and here in Revelation 21, this is what we see, the presence of God and God moving towards that time, that reality that we will be with him. So with that in mind, with now this renewed or a, a, a new awareness of the power of presence that we may be recognizing and feeling. Let's now look at the scriptures and see the heart of God a little bit more clearly as we look at what it means to be in the presence of God and what his desire is for us. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll begin at verse 9. I'm going to go through all of the, the, the reading, and then uh, we're going to backtrack and we're going to start looking at some of the specific components. Verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels with 
which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a great wall and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates." In the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length of the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx. The sixth Sardius, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth a Topaz, the tenth a Chrysoprasus, and the eleventh a Jacinth, and the twelfth an Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every single gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple there in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth shall do their glory shall bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. May the Lord bless the reading of the word. So let's go to the first uh, couple verses here as an introduction. We see um, John now because the the theme or the the tone of the chapter changes here because now John is taken by the angel. Uh, And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit of a great to a great in the spirit to a great and high mountain showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, if you are aware of Ezekiel, this is almost exactly what Ezekiel happened or what happened to him. Ezekiel 40 verse 2, we see in the vision of God, in the visions of God brought me, he, he brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city of the south. Ezekiel is taken by vision into uh, up to a high mountain, just as John was, and he is shown the temple of God. So here, everybody who would have read this would have uh, immediately probably picked up like, oh, okay, this is like Ezekiel. So 
expecting that there's going to be a temple uh, description here. But there's another description here that, or, or another link that we have to make. And it is this, it's a comparison of what God has done already. So if we go back to Revelation chapter 17, the first three verses, we see again a very similar uh, occurrence. It's almost like a deja vu for uh, John. But it says here, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying, Unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So we are now in our minds being, uh, in a sense, um, comparing the destruction of the harlot, the great harlot, that great city Babylon, and, and we're now showing the counter to that, the the authentic, the way it was supposed to be. So in, in, on the one hand, you had this, the great harlot Babylon, who was seducing all of the earth to come and, and uh, to... Um, Believe in the systems, the satanic systems that she was offering. All of the isms. I don't know if you remember when we talked about that. You know, the the different types of uh, belief systems and truth claims. And and these were all the counterfeits. And and God is um, now showing John, uh, or at that time he showed John, what's going to happen to her? I will be triumphant. And no matter how cunning she is, no matter how much support she has, she will be defeated and she will be destroyed. And now John... And the readers, consequently, are being are, are being introduced to the authentic, the bride of Christ, not the harlot, the one who steals and destroys, but the bride of Christ, the city, the New Jerusalem. In in the harlot, we saw that in her destruction, those uh, her her those who came to her, they eventually turned on her, and, and they and all of the things that were good in her. Um, the sound of the harpist, the musicians, the craftsmen, uh, the sound of the mill, uh, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. They were all taken away. And yet in this new city, we just saw in the, the verses previous to this, um, in um, it says uh, there were things taken away from the new city, from the new people. But it says God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. So in one hand, we have all of the good. Anything that was good about this, this great city Babylon, the, the, the harlot, was taken away. And then, consequently, also in the great city of the New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, all those things that were always something, perhaps, that were hard for us to take, that, that something that, you know, in a sense would have been uh, things that detracted from the glory of life and the abundance of life, God takes those away. So I would like to now um, look at some components of the city, and we're going to look at three of them. One of them is going to be the dimensions of the city. And the second would be the walls and the foundation of the walls of the city. And then finally, the third dimension that I want to look at that we have here uh, listed in the scripture are is the light of the city. So in those three things, we're going to see how God reaches out to his people. And we see, again, this desire of God to be with his people. So let's begin, first of all, with the, uh, the size of the city or the dimensions. There's two ways we can look at this. One is literally, and one is figuratively. So we're going to just quickly look first at the literally. So here's the scriptures, verses 15. 
And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square and the length is as large as the breadth. So it's a square. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits according to the measure of man. That is of the angel. So let's look literally at these dimensions. We know what a furlong is. And 12,000 furlongs roughly translates to 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. So now I want you to picture this. A city that is as long on all sides. 1,400 miles on all sides. So I tried to picture this. And so I went onto Google Maps and I looked... There's actually a feature there where you can plot a point and then you move your line. And so I did this and I, I tried, you know, starting in New York and okay, what's 1400? I, ha- I end up in the ocean. I had to go all the way over to the other side of the continent of America and I started in San Diego and I said, okay, what would it look like for this city if one corner was in San Diego right on the shore and what would it look like just roughly to our eyes? So I started in San Diego. I went east all the way over to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Maybe we capped some, I uh, got some crabs there. And then from that point, it took me 23, 23 hours to drive there. From there, I would go north 1400 miles. That would take me all the way up to Wawa, Ontario. So now I've, I've gone from the east coast or the west coast all the way across to the north of the Gulf of Mexico, all the way up now into Ontario above Lake Superior. From there, I'm going to go another 1400 kilometers back towards the west. And that takes me to Edmonton, Alberta, approximately. That takes me 25 hours of driving. And then finally, coming back down from Edmonton to San Diego, 26 hours of driving. That's straight driving, as the map would have it. That is the city. That is the dimension. It's almost, you can't almost fit that in the North American continent. Uh, you have to jump into Canada. Uh, you have to go internationally. That is incredibly amazing. Uh, I don't know if, you know, I thought about, well, how does it compare to New York? So imagine us from here driving to New York. So you drive to New York, and many of us have done that, and it's, it's a long drive, right? So we drive there, drive back again, drive back one more time, and then come all the way back to roughly Buffalo or maybe Rochester, and that is just one side of the city. This city is absolutely amazing. It's enormous. We can't even wrap our heads around how large a city. But here is the, 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 the point that really blew me away. It is as tall as it is wide. So now it's 1,400 miles tall as well. And so, you know, we can almost grasp what it looks like to have a 1,400 uh, cube, but to have, or a square, but to have it cube, that puts us into outer space. That puts us above the spy satellites. Now that totally blows me away because I can't even picture what that must be. And now some um, project that maybe that was a pyramid. So it's not an entirely a cube, but maybe it was just a pyramid. I don't know. If we go the literal route, that's what we have to wrestle with. And, and I'm not saying that it can't be. It's beyond my comprehension. But in God's kingdom, in the new city, the, the new earth and the new heavens, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what, what we, what it's going to be like when we have the, these incor- or incorruptible bodies. Uh, so I don't want to say that, uh, it, for me, it's really hard to grasp. But what about figuratively? Let's look at these numbers figuratively. So if you were to take, um, these numbers, 14 or 1,000 or 12,000 furlongs, um, 
numbers are really, really important in the scriptures. And so I want you to now uh, consider a couple things. First of all, the cube in ancient times was considered to be geometrically perfect. Or one of nearly geometrically perfect. So we have this picture of a cube. So this almost perfect geometry of the cube. And, and it says that it's one, uh, 12,000 12, furlongs. A lot of translations will say that it's 1,500 miles or 1,400 miles. But I think it's important, if we're going to go figuratively, that we leave it at 12,000 furlongs, because each of those numbers is significant. So if we look at the number 12, it is, um, especially in this chapter, we see it all over the place. 12, 12, 12, 12 apostles, 12 disciples, or uh, um, 12 tribes, um, and all of these different uh, 12s in here. 12 is an organization, stands for organizational perfection. So when, when you have an organization and, uh, the number 12 is the number that you want. If, if you were to have a board of directors, let's say for instance, right? 12 is, is the, considered the perfect number. I don't know if that still carries forward to today, but that's the sort of idea. And, and look at 12 tribes. God chose, uh, of the children of Israel, He chose 12 tribes. Um, Jesus chose 12 disciples, 12 apostles. It's a complete number. So we have this number, 12, this, this number that talks of completeness, and we have 1,000. Now, 1,000 on its own. So it's not saying it's 12,000, but saying 12 groups of 1,000. And then, um, it's not the 1,400 miles. Josephus, along with others, claim that this means perfection. So 1,000 means perfections. Others say that it points to a large or infinitely large number um, in the fullness of quantity. So imagine this, like we know the scripture that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That thousand is, is in a sense saying he owns the, the, uh, cattle on this innumerable, uh, amount of hills, this, uh, a, a massive amount of hills. Um, and in a sense he's saying it's the fullness, like I own it all. So it's not like he says I own it on a thousand hills, but on the thousand and first hill I don't own that. No, we understand that that thousand represents that he owns it all. And it's a way of, of saying that thousand represents that I own all of it. In, in all of its greatness, all of its fullness, I own it. And so now we have to ask ourselves, how is it that this number is affixed to the cube? Is it possible that we can uh, understand this to mean that it is a perfect dimension? It's the perfect largeness. It's the perfect size. There is no uh, compromise. There's no, um, uh, you know, maybe it could have been a little bit bigger. It's going to be absolutely perfect in its enormity for the children of Israel. But even more so, the cube. Think about um, uh, the other times where we would have seen the cube. Um, and because they, they do very much uh, relate to the, to the presence of God. So if you remember, and I just went through this in my, my own uh, study, um, the children of Israel in the wilderness, God made them uh, or gave them directions for the tabernacle, the tent. And within the tent, there was the most holy place. And that most holy place was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It was a perfect cube. And what was the point of that? It was that was where God, his presence was. That's where he would come and meet with uh, Moses. Again, we see that in the temple uh, that was built in Jerusalem. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, 19 to 20, it talks about how the, the temple was 
20 cubits by 20 cubits, or the, uh, the most holy, the holy of holies was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Again, that cube, this perfect cube. And here we see, um, again, that same place where God, um, in a way of saying, in a virtual sense, if you could almost say that, I want my presence to be with my people. I'm going to build this place that's most uh, geometrically perfect, and it's going to be in the tent, it's going to be this dimension. But that is where the Shekinah glory of, of God was going to rest. And you're going to know that I'm with you when my presence is with you in the most holy place. And, and similarly in the temple. And it was so revered by the people because that was where the presence of God was. And it, they could only go in once a year. But how beautiful it is that God gave us, in a sense, almost like a virtual um, place that we could go and recognize that this is his presence, even though we could not be with him in the fullness of presence. And so when we look at these dimensions, let's not get hung up on the size. And maybe, you know, maybe it is the size. I don't know. But the point is, this is similar to what we had, the foreshadowing that we had in the, for the children of Israel. This place where God would be with us, even though he really wasn't with us, couldn't be with us in fullness. But now here in the new Jerusalem, we have this place that is perfect in its dimensions. It's not just a foreshadow. It is the real place, the real deal, the real presence of God and the very true presence of God would be with the children of Israel. Let's look at the foundation and the gates. Um, so we're going to just jump through some of the verses here because they're, they're a little bit divided, but verses 12, 13, 14 say, of the city, and had a great a wall, great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the found now jumping down to verse nineteen. And the foundation of the wall of the city was were garnished with all manners of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, and so on. And I'm not going to go through the, the the gems again. We're not going to deal much with the gems, so I don't want to go try and read them all again. But it says, verse 21, in the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, and it was trans- as if it were transparent glass. So here we have the perimeter of the city. And the description of this perimeter. And, and as I'm going through the, per, the perimeter here, um, we see uh, similar things. Again, we see the foreshadowing through the Old Testament of what we're seeing here. Uh, verses 12, 13, uh, we see um, in the wilderness, uh, as they were um, establishing uh, the, the, temp, the tabernacle there, they also then were directed who would sit on which sides of the tent. And, and in the wilderness, 12 tribes came came in formation around the tabernacle. So this, we see this in Numbers chapter 2. Um, so that each of the tribes had their place. And it was a place of honor. So, you know, he had the most honorable tribes here, and then least, and so on and so forth. And But they each had a place all around the perimeter of the tabernacle, the presence of God. And each of them had a place there. Ezekiel also speaks of it uh, in, in chapter 48, uh, verse 30. And this is symbolic of the presence of God being central to the lives of his uh, chosen ones. In the center, um, all the gates around, but in the center was the presence of God. This is the place where he said, this is the most holy place. And I want all of you, in a sense, to uh, order your lives in such a way that my dwelling place, my presence, is the center 
The center of, of you as a people, the center of, of, of your dwelling, and all things. I need you to uh, put me and esteem me above all things. Now, I'm going to just uh, jump to a, a little bit of a, uh, a thing that... Something that I thought was a little bit odd. Um, and it's the, the nature or the organization. So in my mind, I've always thought, you know, Israel, the ancient, and uh, then came the apostles, comes a church. But when I see the, the, the order of, of the, the perimeter, in a sense, um, it's reversed in my mind to what I think it should have been or what I thought it should have been. And it has the, the, the new, the apostles, the uh, the church, in a sense, is the foundation of the wall. And I thought that was a little bit odd, thinking to myself, you know, of course the old should be, you know, the old, the base, the foundation. And No, but it's not. It's the apostles that are that foundation. If you want to look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, chapter two it explains this here a little bit. And I want to just dwell on this for a moment. Because this deals with the um, the presence of God in a different way. So Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Paul is talking to the Ephesians, um, to the Gentiles, and, and he was telling them about, you know, uh, the grace of God and the salvation that is offered to them, and uh, contrasting it with, uh, you know, perhaps the Judaizers who would have been... Uh, Telling them that they are not part of this, and you're not part of us, and you know you can't be part of us, and so on. But in in uh, I'm going to skip some of the verses that I had because time is moving on. But verse 20 and are built upon the foundations. Okay, let's go back to verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, what was it that separated us in the beginning? What was it that took fellowship with God, the presence of God in a very physical and real way, and, and ruined that for us? But it was sin. And the foundation, the only thing now, and if we think about the perimeter, the, the wall around, the habitation of the people, the only thing that can um, truly restore a presence, a full and a real and a true presence with God is the elimination of what destroyed that in the first place. And that is the elimination of sin. And so here we have the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ, who through the sacrifice of his body, destroyed sin forever, destroyed the power of sin, destroyed the tyranny of sin. And it's through then the gospel that is being preached by the apostles, the message that they delivered that is no longer of works of the law, but it is now through grace, by grace, through faith. This powerful message is what is the foundation of us in our relationship with God. We as a people who dwell with, uh, in a sense, if we, if you consider looking at the wall, who are the glory of the city, who are, in a sense, dwelling with God, and He is the one who is in the center of our lives, the only way we can ever be in a place like that, the only thing that bolsters us and gives us any sort of hope of, of stability is the work of Jesus Christ, and it is the gospel that was preached by the, the apostles. And the prophets. It is that idea that only through faith in Jesus Christ, that only through faith and obedience, that we can have 
that freedom and that victory over sin. And that is the foundation. And that foundation, once it is established, and it has been established, and once it becomes uh, the foundation in our lives, now makes uh, possible that we can also uh, build upon that foundation lives of faith. That we can be, um, in a sense, part of the city, part of the bride of Christ. If you take that away, then we have no foundation. We are on sinking and shaky ground. Jesus says, uh, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law. He never came to take away the law or, or what the, uh, what God had given to the, to the children of Israel originally. He came to fulfill it so that we then also have, and Paul speaks of this in Romans, so that the, the occasion that sin took, uh, by the law to go and corrupt things and to, to throw a wrench in the gears in a sense, now through Jesus Christ has been erased. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Because the law is that perfect reflection of the character of God. And it's not uh, something that uh, it, it, we should look at negatively, but something that through those two great commandments, right, that reflect, and we, we've gone through the, the uh, Ten Commandments, and we see how these reflect the nature of God. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we now can truly uh, live and be part of that chosen people. Love God above all else with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Through Only through Christ, through the victory we have over sin, can we actually fulfill that and do those things. Very interestingly, verse 21 says, And twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every several gate was of one pearl. Now, Pearls are pretty precious, and they're expensive. I, I think the most expensive was like 300 and some odd thousand, and it was about two and a half inches long. Now imagine what this is saying here. This is saying the gate itself was all pearl, but it wasn't made up of a whole bunch of pearls. It was one pearl. Now just that, um, that picture is amazing to me. But think more, I think more appropriately that we need to think about this. The gates represent Jesus Christ, first of all, is that gate. That gate says that we, unless we go through Christ, we cannot enter into uh, heaven. And, and so think about the pearl and how the pearl is formed. And it is by a, a small speck of something going into the clam, sitting into that mollusk. And, and then the, the mollusk uh, releases uh, this chemical and it slowly builds up. And it takes the infection and it, it, it it nullifies the infection and it protects itself. This clam does. But what we get out of that is beautiful. And in so many ways, that's like how Christ, as we are in Christ, we bring who we are just as I am. And we are offensive in our, our righteousness because it's all like filthy rags. And yet he makes us glorious. He covers us with his righteousness. And so like these pearls, these pearly gates that we, uh, such a, a terrible cliche, because it, it's built upon um, the, the sacrifice and the righteousness of Christ. That's why these gates are so precious. That's how, uh, I, 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 the more I, 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 I I don't know what I don't know. And as I was going through these scriptures, I, I started seeing some of these connections. And it, it just blows my mind how how God so uh, carefully puts all these things in there. And is, is that, I, I, it doesn't fit 100% the analogy. But I think about how through Christ alone are we worthy. Through Christ alone only can we enter into heaven. And perhaps that is what those gates represent. The righteousness that Christ gives to us.
I started looking at the gems, trying to understand you know, the significance of the gems. Um, but like I said, you don't know what you don't know until you try to understand it. And, and as I was looking through all the, the, the significance of the gems, I just started going deeper and deeper and deeper into the, studying these gems. I don't want to get into the gems right now other than that they were beautiful and that they reflected the light of Christ the, the pure light of God, and, and the gems are known, all these particular gems are known for uh, taking pure white light and uh, diffusing it and, and splitting it into the colors of the rainbow. So perhaps there's a, a great significance there as well. But finally, the light of the city. So here we see uh, it, God with us, Emmanuel. So having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So it's describing the city, clear as crystal. And the building of the wall was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. We can't imagine what this means or how this looks, but we've never seen gold that was like unto clear gas, uh, glass. And the st- in verse 21, and the st- and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. We know all through Scripture that when God showed himself, revealed himself, it's always described as this Light, but not a light that we can imagine. Like this pure light, this, this light that we perhaps have never seen. And in fact, as Moses was with him on the, uh, the uh, mountain, it, and he encountered God there, and not even fully, but that light was, um, uh, it, it shone on Moses then. And when he came down, it kind of freaked people out. The presence of God is so powerful that even those who have come close to the presence of God and who bear that light that he has, has clearly, uh, uh, it, it unnerves people. And yet here we have this promise, this city that is transparent in a sense. And I, and I wonder if it's transparent, the gold and the jasper and so on, so that there are no places where the light of God does not reach. That there are no uh, places where there are shadows. There's no places where somebody can stand and say, I'm in the shadow of this wall and I cannot be in the direct uh, light of God, in the presence of God. Perhaps that's why it is. I'm not sure. But here we have, and we're not going to have time to go through all of this, but here we have this beautiful, beautiful promise that I don't need a temple anymore. I don't need the, uh, the, the most holy place anymore. My presence now, and, and this is the, that paradise found. Oh, glory be when we can come to this point where we, uh, through the blood of Jesus, through the righteousness of Christ, can enter into the city and we can be in the presence of God again. Paradise that was lost in Genesis is now found in Revelation. Oh, what a beautiful thought to think that the presence of God. And how many of you uh, have been in the presence of greatness and you just want to stay there? You just want to, you know, maybe not go right up to it, but you want to just be in the presence somehow. Maybe on the outskirts but this is what it's going to be like and it's going to be eternal will never end and and he will know us completely and we will then also have perfect knowledge oh i think about that i I can't fully grasp that i can't you know imagine the presence i i know a little bit more now what it means to be not in presence 
of somebody, to really miss that presence. But I, I, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Um, to be in the presence of God, we, we can only you know, look at these scriptures. We can only try and imagine. We can see the response of those who have seen the glory of God in one way or another. And we can see how they responded with fear, trembling. What's it going to be like for us? Are we going to long for that day? Are we going to look at these scriptures and just rejoice and praise God? Because we have now the presence of God so completely unworthy. So, um, I want to say out of our league, but like just so, so not belonging there in that we are, we are so imperfect. And yet we are made perfect through Christ. Isn't that a glorious thought to be in the presence of God? But here's the, the problem, right? We get zoomed out. I, I heard some this week earlier, I think when we were meeting together virtually, somebody says, you know, we're getting zoomed out. And, and so here's something that I want to just leave you with and we encourage you with. We need to protect our hearts. We need to protect our hearts about against being zoomed out. When, when we look at these scriptures and we can't understand them and we say, you know, ah, oh, I just, I don't get it. Pearly gates, you know, clouds and harps and all that kind of stuff. I just don't want it anymore. And so then we become maybe a little bit too focused on the here and now. And, and I just want to leave you with what uh, uh, Abraham said, or what was said about Abraham. Um, because Abraham was one who knew what he was looking for. And he knew the dangers of settling. And, and so I, I want to encourage each of us to, you know, maybe ask the Spirit to, uh, to show us, have we settled? Have we lost uh, some of the, the awe of, of this chapter, of this idea of heaven? Um, have we lost some of that awe and instead settled for less? Abraham didn't. And it says in Hebrews 11, chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10, by faith he so sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that's tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. It says that he, even though he was in the land of promise, he was still considered himself a stranger in a sense. He still didn't want to set down roots. He didn't want to build a, a city. And he very ab- was able to. He could have easily done it. But he didn't. He still stayed in the tabernacle, in the tents. Why did he do this though? Because he knew what he was looking for. And he knew that it was not worth the compromise. And it says in verse 10, and I'll leave this with you for a close. For he looked for a city which had which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These are, this vision that John had is the vision that Abraham had, is the vision that we need. I pray that God would give us the uh, courage to be like Abraham here, not settle roots, but to look always for that future city. Amen.